this is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Well, folks, there's nothing like a creepy sex scandal to puncture the sanctimonious bubble of a rising conservative star. Congressman Matt Goetz, who would murder his own mother to appear on television, has most recently been making the conservative cable rounds to defend himself against allegations that he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and paid for her to travel with him. The Department of Justice is investigating the Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida for a possible sexual relation with a 17-year-old. That reporting from the New York Times just this hour, citing three people who claim he also paid for her to travel with him, which violates federal sex trafficking laws. A variety of federal statutes makes it illegal to induce someone under the age of 18 to travel over state lines to engage in sex in exchange for money or something of value. The Justice Department regularly prosecutes such cases, and offenders often receive severe sentences. The investigation has been running for several months and, ironically, was opened during the final days of the Trump administration under former attorney, yeah, former attorney General William Barr. I only know what I've read in the New York Times. Uh, I can say that actually you and I went to dinner uh, about two years ago. Your wife was there and I brought a friend of mine, you'll remember her, and she was actually threatened by the FBI, told that if she wouldn't cop to the fact that somehow I was involved in some pay-for-play scheme, uh, that she could face trouble. And so uh, I do believe that there are people at the Department of Justice who are trying to smear me. The investigation into Mr. Getz is part of a much wider probe into his closest political ally and fellow Floridian, Joel Greenberg who was indicted last summer on an array of sleazy charges, including, yep, including sex trafficking of a child and financially supporting people in exchange for sex, at least one of whom was an underage girl. But the real reason Matt Gates should know just how harshly federal investigators treat child sex trafficking is because his very, 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 very close friend and political ally, a friend so close that Matt Gates brought this friend with him to the Trump White House, took this picture, is now in jail for violating bond in a case involving child sex trafficking. Getz has countered the allegations with a story that he is the victim of an elaborate extortion plot by a former Justice Department official. In a three-part tweet, Getz offered a bizarre alibi for himself. Over the past several weeks, my family and I have been victims of an organized criminal extortion involving a former DOJ official seeking $25 million while threatening to smear my name, he wrote. On March 16th, my father got a text message demanding a meeting wherein a person demanded $25 million in exchange for making horrible sex trafficking allegations against me go away. We have been cooperating with the federal authorities in this matter, he continued, adding that his father, former Republican Florida State Senator Don Getz, has even been wearing a wire at the FBI's direction to catch these criminals. Sorry, in publicly talking about the extortion plot that he's described and publicly saying his father wore a wire, he is basically destroying and blowing up an FBI investigation, which is in itself 
something you would think would be against his own interest. You would think that he would be wanting to work with the FBI and you would think he would want to keep this quiet. So you have to you have to put this all into context and say that in doing this and basically blowing off an FBI investigation into people trying to extort this family, you know, he he has both complicated that investigation and also cast aspersions on something that was serious enough that Attorney General Barr proved it. His wild account continued. The planted leak to the FBI tonight was intended to thwart that investigation. No part of the allegations against me are true, and the people pushing these lies are targets of the ongoing extortion investigation. I demand the DOJ immediately release the tapes made at their direction, which implicate their former colleague in crimes against me based on false allegations. Well, what was supposed to happen uh, was the transfer of this money that would have implicated the former colleague of these current DOJ officials. But that's obviously not going to happen tomorrow because the New York Times story was leaked in order to quell that investigative effort. So here's what needs to happen next. The FBI and the Department of Justice must release the tapes that are in their possession that were done at their direction. Those tapes will show that I am innocent and that the whole concept of sex charges against me was really just a way to try to bleed my family out of money and probably smear my name. Now, no charges have been filed against Getz yet, but he told the Times in a statement that he was only aware that he had come up in an investigation, though he did not believe he was the target. I only know that it has to do with women. I have a suspicion that someone is trying to recategorize my generosity to ex-girlfriends as something more untoward. Providing for flights uh, and hotel rooms for people that you're dating who are of legal age is not a crime. Let's listen now to Getz on Tucker Carlson trying to spin his way out of what could be a career-ruining mess. And I believe we are in an era of our politics now, Tucker, where people are smeared to try to take them out of the conversation. I'm not the only person on screen right now who's been falsely accused of a terrible sex act. You were accused of something that you did not do. And so you know what this feels like. You know the pain it can bring to your family. And you know how it just puts people on defense when you're accused of something so salacious and awful. But it did not happen. It is not true. Elected into Congress in 2016, Getz has fashioned himself as an ultra-conservative firebrand, a millennial Trump who appears often on Fox News and its right-wing challenger, Newsmax. He supported Trump's big lie that the November presidential election has been stolen and voted against certifying the election results from Pennsylvania and Arizona on January 6th and 7th. Matt Gates is a great man, a great gentleman, and what a future he had. The same day news of the investigation into his alleged past relationship broke, Axios reported that Getz was considering retiring from Congress when his term ends in 2023 in favor of a commentator role at Newsmax. In 2017, he was the lone member of both the House and the Senate to vote against a bill that would provide broader authority and increased funding for the federal government to combat human trafficking. Why then would I be the only no vote in the entire Congress against legislation that had human trafficking in the title? The man has always been nothing more than a disgusting troll who used Trump's rise to power to grease his own entry into political life and rise on Trump's shoulders. It spotlights the worst of the worst who have used Trump to advance their own agendas. Good, I almost had to smoke a cigarette afterwards. 
His connection to this ridiculously shady Joel Greenberg shines an even uglier spotlight on the bottom-feeding political machinery behind Trump and many of his most hardcore MAGA defenders. According to the New York Times, Greenberg maintained ties to controversial figures who have supported Donald Trump. A website run by a member of the far-right group The Proud Boys and a network of fake social media accounts linked to Mr. Trump's longtime political advisor, Roger Stone Jr., have promoted false accusations about Mr. Greenberg's rivals, similar to rumors that prosecutors accused Mr. Greenberg of secretly trying to spread. Greenberg is facing sex trafficking charges related to a girl between the ages of 14 and 17 and is also accused of illegally using a state database to look up information about the girl and other people with whom he was engaged in, quote, sugar daddy relationships. Getz is the literal embodiment of what the GOP has transformed itself into under Donald Trump. He invited a right-wing Holocaust denier to the State of the Union address in 2018 and attended an event last year that was protected by the Proud Boys. When Democrats moved in 2019 to impeach Trump for the first time, Mr. Getz and a phalanx of Republicans followed him, barged past police into a secure rooms of the House Intelligence Committee to briefly break up the investigation into the president. There is a very serious federal investigation open under the Trump administration. And I'm a former prosecutor. They don't just do this out of nothing. There's got to be a factual predicate. And at the Department of Justice, there's going to be a whole team of federal agents and prosecutors investigating Matt Gates. So he's in um, some deep trouble, and that's why he needs to be removed from the House Judiciary Committee. After Trump's defeat last year, Getz was Trump's loudest cheerleader and defender, parroting the former president's baseless claims of widespread election fraud, and later traveled to Wyoming to hold a fucking rally against ranking House Representative Liz Cheney, who had voted to impeach Trump for inciting the riot. Some pretty compelling evidence from a facial recognition company showing that some of the people who breached the Capitol today were not Trump supporters. They were masquerading as Trump supporters and in fact were members of the violent terrorist group Antifa. Now we should seek to build America up not tear her down and destroy her. And I am sure glad that at least for one day, I didn't hear my Democrat colleagues calling to defund the police. Well, Matt, looks like people are finally recognizing you for who you really are. A sleazy, fucking lying, and frankly dangerous right-wing shithead. I will never forget how you taunted me on Twitter during the darkest days of my life just before I faced the House Select Committee. You made up lies about me that were disgusting and untrue. Well, pal, fucking karma's a bitch, and this bud's for you. And just a gigolo, and everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. And now for the main event. While Donald Trump finds himself increasingly on the ropes, with new litigation against him emerging daily, the spotlight has shifted to those around him who were most destructive in their own actions. In recent days, we have seen how Sidney Powell, under the weight of one of the billion-dollar lawsuits, collapsed and gave up the goods on the big lie. Now the pressure is on groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and their connection to people like Roger Stone and Trump's inner circle. 
by all accounts, Getz was part of that world as well and was a welcome and frequent guest at Mar-a-Lago. This recent investigation that will likely make even Trump distance himself will likely shake that tree even further. What's emerging from all of this is a complicated web of deceit, sedition, and treachery that requires decoding. Luckily, my guest today, Matt Taibbi, has spent the past decade exposing the most egregious sins of lawmakers, banks, and hypocrites as the prestigious political affairs editor for Rolling Stone. It's a post that was first established by gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson, and he used to perch to probe, poke, and infuriate the Nixon administration as it came tumbling down. In this new millennium, Taibbi, who is also an expert on Russia and Putin from his days as the editor of Moscow's expat Bible, The Exile, is the perfect person to carry that mantle. He is the winner of a National Magazine Award for his political writing for Rolling Stone and most recently launched the Useful Idiots podcast. So let's listen now to that conversation. Okay, so I'm here with Matt Taibbi. Uh, Matt, we're going to do what we do with every single show. We have a lot to talk about, so we just jump straight into it. Okay. Earlier this week, Sidney Kraken Powell in filings related to the billion-dollar lawsuit filed against her by Dominion Voting Systems, admitted that she had made up the Kraken conspiracy in its entirety and that no reasonable person, you can't make this shit up, that no reasonable person would believe it to have been true. Now, obviously, she's looking for an out from a ruinous lawsuit, but it now calls into question the entirety of the post-election big lie and puts a proof point behind it from one of its main um, antagonists. Do you think this will lead to some kind of fallout from all these congressmen and senators who continue to push this bullshit narrative? Discuss this with me. Well, I, I think the it was pretty clear what was going on when she was unable to answer Tucker Carlson in that interview, uh, when... All of those various media figures were, were threatened with lawsuits, and they they immediately read their public confessions on air. And um, so it was, I think it was clear even then that there wasn't any evidence for this for her to to mount this defense. Now it's ridiculous, uh, but you know it's, I think it's expected given this, the the circumstances. Um, it, but it'll certainly be embarrassing for uh, any member of Congress that that. Uh, I, I, do, you mean, do you really think that any of those members actually believed it? I, I, I doubt that. I think they might have thought it was a good political play, but I, I don't know if they ever believed it. Yeah, I definitely don't think that they believed any of it. They knew for themselves that they needed to stay loyal. They needed to show their fealty to Donald Trump. And in so doing, they were willing to go along with the big lie, not thinking that there would be any repercussions. You know, I saw in an article there was something where um, they're now suing um, the Dominion voting is also suing Fox with Sean Hannity and so on. And I think it's like a one point two or one point eight billion dollar lawsuit. Now, look, let, let me let me now play both sides of the coin here as a lawyer. First of all. You have to show damages. And will, do I believe that they have the liability that Sidney Powell, Sean Hannity, Fox, the rest of these assholes, that it can easily be shown that they lie, they knew it was a lie, they were promoting a lie, and so on? The answer is yes. So I believe that on liability, 
that they will actually be successful in this case. But now what you have to do if you're Dominion voting system is you have to show damages. How were they damaged? And maybe they were damaged. I don't know the answer to that. But you think they were damaged to the tune of 1.2 or 1.8 billion, whatever the amount was? Because that's what this case is really all about, which is damages to Dominion voting system. And I'm just not really sure that next you know, election cycle that the government is not going to use Dominion voting system um, voting booths simply because of the promotion by Trump, by Fox, by Sidney Powell, right, of the big lie. You agree with that? Well, could they be calculating the potential that they'll lose business uh, if there are Republicans in office in the future or at the state level? Um, I mean, I, I don't know how, that, how those calculations would work. Probably they'd have a tough, tough time showing present damages, that's for sure. Uh, right, but, but it's very difficult to get future damages. You really actually have to have damages right. in order to be able to go to the court and to ask them to award you billion-dollar verdicts. Sure. Now, sure. I'm not again. I'm not saying that I know because I don't what um, Dominion Voting Systems has lost mm-hmm. as a result of this big lie. But certainly, you know, they're going to, and, and I'm sure their lawyers are. I mean, anybody that's going to bring a billion-dollar lawsuit. I guarantee that they have qualified lawyers and they clearly understand that, you know, these cases are bifurcated, right? The first part is liability. The second part is damages. So the question is, can they show the damages? And if they do, then I believe that there will be a verdict. How much? Obviously, that's to be determined. But I want to go back to the whole point about these congressmen and these senators who just continue. They just don't stop to push this bullshit from guys like Ted Cruz to Josh Hawley to, you know, to Matt Goetz to Marco Rubio to all of these guys. And I always say to myself, somebody really needs to explain to me what the hell are they thinking outside of the box, which is... By me staying loyal to Trump, that he's not going to, what, tweet negative stuff about me? Well, you know that can't happen anymore. He's banned from Twitter. So what are they worried about? I mean, they're worried about being called rhinos. I I, I have no idea. I, I think it's obviously, I think, a political mistake. You know, they, they, they would have done better, I think, to take an, a, you know, an initial political hit uh, from you know, last fall and just said what they actually thought back then and said, uh, you know, show us the evidence for it. And if you don't have it, you know, like, let's let's drop this. Uh, but they've probably gone so far that they, you know, they're going to keep doubling down. It's like it's like poker. You know, they're going <laughs> to they're going to keep raising uh, rather than have to deal with somebody calling eventually. I, I guess I have no idea. I, I, don't, I don't know what goes through the heads of people like that. Uh, what, yeah, what's, your, what, what's, what's your thought? I have I, I don't know. Well, I, I want to just jump on yours that they're going to be called rhinos, right? Republicans in name only. And as if that's supposed to damage them, hurt their credibility, hurt their chance for their reelection midterm, right? Um, for those that are up for reelection in 2022. To the contrary, to me, it's more that they're behaving like the representatives that they're supposed to be. Right. On behalf of their constituents, which is supposed to be whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent, it's supposed to benefit America. 
And I'm just not really sure what any of this, this nonsense, this big lie bullshit, the storming of the Capitol, how any of this could actually help you to become reelected other than to destroy not just your name, but also to destroy your family's name for generations to come. I mean, I would not want to be Josh Hawley. Right? I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't want to be Donald Trump Jr. or Donald Trump III. I wouldn't want any of that, simply because he's going to be remembered as the insurrection president. Right. He's going to be the, remembered as the president that tried to destroy democracy, that tried to shred our Constitution and turn our, you know, our democratic election into a farce. I mean, that's not, that's not really the legacy that I suspect a president wants to pass down to you know future generations with the same name. That's again, that's just my opinion on this. No, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I, I think it was a colossal mistake morally, politically, in every way. I mean, the, you know, tr- Trump for all of his um, foibles, and he has a lot of them, and I, I've covered, I covered him on the cam- a couple of different campaigns. Uh, you know, I, I never saw him make as enormous a political error as he made after uh the last election it just it was just inexplicable i mean he does a lot of things that are inexplicable but that that one was a huge one and then it was even more uh inexplicable that so many people within the party decided to go along with it even after he had, he had already lost like what you know at this point why bother uh, it didn't make any sense yeah, they didn't just go along with it. They funded him right, well, to right, the tune yes. of like $300 million. Folks, wake the fuck up. I mean, you're giving your money to an alleged billionaire so that he could pay for his legal defense, that he could pay for his, for his life, that he could end up continuing to be the, you know, the king of the Republican Party? What are they thinking? I mean, I, again, I, I truly don't understand any of them. What's so odd about it is that these are the same politicians who who didn't have any qualms about crossing Donald Trump when they were candidates in the in the primary in in 2016. So you know what what's the issue now? I mean, they're obviously not inherently afraid to cross the guy. Um, they, unless they're worried about being primaried, I, I just don't understand what the, what the deal is. Well, I don't know. They seem to be very worried of him and his presence for whether it's the midterms or the you know the general. Right. Uh, I I don't I truly don't get it. But this twenty four seven Trump soap opera narrative became a cottage industry for both right wing and mainstream media sites that opposed him. Now the outrage to Trump was good business for the New York Times and for MSNBC and CNN. Now that he's gone and there is a more staid presence in the White House, what do these news organizations do to replace the Trump you know, syndrome, so to speak? It's going to create a massive news hole for them if it hasn't already, in addition to declining revenue from ads and so on. Now, it's something no one wants to talk about as... It shows an addiction the media had on both sides to Trump as a deliverer of ratings and also of clicks. Discuss this with me if you can. Yeah, I, I just wrote about this. First of all, you're right. The, the, the audiences since Trump entered the race, if you go back to 2014, 
uh, it was normal for a, a station like CNN or MSNBC to be somewhere between 20th and 30th overall in terms of cable stations. And in January, uh, the, the top three cable stations that we, the, of 2021, the, the top three stations were just MSNBC, Fox, and CNN. So basically, news cable, sta- cable news stations have replaced sort of entertainment channels like ESPN and USA, USA. They've cut into the market share of entertainment. And they did that almost entirely through Trump. Trump was solely responsible for this massive boom in viewership. And if you look at MSNBC, they probably quadrupled their audience uh, from t- t- 2015 to now. CNN, it was roughly they tripled it. Fox doubled their audience. Uh, and you know, I was I was there with reporters when we were talking about this in the early uh, part of his campaign in 2016. And they were saying things like, it's unbelievable. Like, we just put the guy on camera and we're getting ratings. Like, it doesn't matter what we say, positive, negative, like, it, it works. And I think the networks realized that. And they they adopted the stance of we're going to market ourselves as either being for or against Trump. And we're going to give people Trump news all day long. The problem with that formula is once he leaves, what do you do? You can't just go back to being like a neutral uh, news station because you know that, that's not your identity anymore, and that's why you're seeing these pre- precipitous drops in ratings right now. The, let, the most recent numbers have been pretty catastrophic for all the uh, the stations. A little bit less for Fox because they get to be oppositional, which is a uh, you know a comfortable position for them. But for MSNBC, CNN, uh, it's it's going to be really really tough. Hi folks, Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out Tuesday's episode featuring an interview with master counterfeiter Frank Barassa. Considered the world's greatest, he once made and used over $250 million in U.S. currency. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the January 7th episode with Javier Peña and Stephen Murphy, the former DEA agents who took down Pablo Escobar. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. Search The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. He made it, Donald made it so easy Mm -hmm. for everybody. Let's just go back to the day that he decided to announce that he was going to be running for the presidency. 
there in Trump Tower. I was involved in it. I set the whole place up. And he comes out of the bat, right out of the box, with the Mexican statement, right? That all Mexicans are drug dealers, they're rapists, they're murderers. But don't worry about it. Some are actually some good people. Right. I was standing next to George Stephanopoulos at the time, right? And he looked up at me and he goes, he didn't really just say that, did he? (laughs) And I said, "Um, yeah, George, he did. So he goes, well, this campaign is over. (laughs) And it's it's funny as all. I shouldn't say the word funny because it's not funny. It's sad that not only did it not throw him out of the race, which it would have for virtually any other candidate, but it made him front page headline news and it created an excitement and a buzz like a it became like a Kardashian campaign where no matter what crazy shit he did, more people started following, more people became, you know, engaged in Trump's campaign. And how we know that to be true. We were basing everything on Twitter. So when he first started, he immediately got, I don't know, five, six, seven hundred and fifty thousand Twitter followers. Now, respectable, considering he had just launched it. After the Mexican comment, it went up to like two or three million. And that's when he started to say, wait, it's no different than his birther argument, which propelled him right into the news cycle where his name, which is all he cared about, would be on the front page of every single newspaper. And what you're doing is like you're feeding an addiction. You're feeding it an addict. He's chasing the dragon, so to speak, for his name to be on the front page of every single newspaper. And I'll never forget that right after, for example, with the birther comment or even after with the Mexican comment, I'll never forget, he must have had a stack of newspapers on his desk, 30, 40 high. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, the shitty New York Post, the Daily Snooze, right? You know, uh, you, you name it. He had it on his desk. And I remember him sitting across the desk from me, all proud, right? His face was all, you know, chest pumped up. He had that that pucker in his mouth, right? You know, like he just finished sucking on a lemon, right? And he was like, Michael, is this the greatest? Look at this shit. Trump. And, you know, he always talks about himself in third person, right? So he goes, <laughs> so he goes, Michael, Michael, Trump is on the front page of every paper. And, you know, I, after a while, you know, when someone talks about themselves in third person, it just becomes sort of, you know, it just becomes routine, Right. Trump's the most popular guy out there. I'm on the front cover of every single newspaper. Is this the greatest? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, that's pretty fucking amazing, right? I mean, considering you just basically castigated the entire Mexican American or, you know, the entire Mexican community with one very nasty statement. But again, chasing the dragon, Trump needing his fix. He did the same shit when it came to white supremacy, right? He did the same thing with Charlottesville. He refused to renounce or denounce, I should say, David Duke. I don't even know who he is. 
Who right. is this David Duke guy? Right. Well, two things. One, if you don't know who he is, you're an idiot and you shouldn't be running for president. And two, if you're going to lie and say that you don't know who really, you know, David Duke is. Yeah, hadn't, hadn't he explicitly said something about Duke back when he was thinking about running in the Reform Party? I think if I remember. He, he did. But what he saw out of the David Duke non-rebuffing is the fact that it once again propelled him to the front page of every single newspaper. And it's something I talk about a lot in the book, Disloyal, which is where his narcissistic, sociopathic, you know, um, personality requires the continuous, continuous adulation of him day in and day out. If when Donald Trump would read a newspaper, and I want to be very clear about this, he wasn't reading the newspaper for the news. He was reading the newspaper to see if his name was in it. And nothing would make him more happy than when he would see his name on page six. Why? Who knows? It's like, for me, page six is shit. And I think the whole fucking New York Post is garbage. But for some reason, right? And now it would make sense why Trump is so in need of page six. Because he always believed that page six was the source that everybody went to. Well, that's what he wanted. And that's why every day he would wake up get a hold of his cell phone, start tweeting out something more and more offensive, more and more ridiculous. So, Matt, people like yourself would be like, why do I even need to look to see what we're going to talk about today? Right. Donald already gave it to me at 5 fucking a.m. Right, right. Was he, I have to ask you, was he actually thinking about winning at that point? Because my impression was always that, no, that this was a a publicity stunt mixed with, he just loved the idea of the adulation mixed with let's have some fun doing this, like what, what, or what he defines as fun, right? Which is showing up in the newspapers. Uh, I mean, I, I, did he actually think that this was a real political campaign or, or? The answer to that is no. Right. And I've said this many times, both in press and in, in, on television. This was originally designed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. It was all about rebranding the Trump brand as an international political powerhouse of five-star magnitude that we were going to be able to do deals all over the place, including, but not limited to, as we always say in the law, the Trump Tower Moscow project. He never thought he was going to win. And then all of a sudden, as we knocked off each and every one of the Republicans, he was like, holy shit. We could pull this off, but he still didn't think he was going to win against Clinton, against the Clinton machine, which is why he never showed up to the election night. And it was only after about 1030, 1040, when they called the election in his in his favor, did he run and start preparing a victory speech. (laughs) He never he didn't have one, (laughs) nor did nor did he have a transition team memo book. Right, right, because he wouldn't. He wouldn't let. If I remember correctly, Christie wanted to to put one together, right? And they they kind of never really allowed him to do that, or or what happened with the transition there? Well, I I stole from Scaramucci's office Mitt Romney's transition book, and I remember I handed it to him, and I said, Mister Trump, this was Mitt Romney's transition book. We should follow it, and then just start putting people's names. And no, no, it's bad luck. 
right? And uh, bad luck. I mean, you have 1,500 names that you need to put into that book. Mitz was all nice with red, glossy, hardcover <laughs> backing onto it. The next day after Trump won, you know, they're all running around, you know, the, the office handing out photocopy pages saying, whoever you think would be good for that position, just write their name down. You're like, huh? That's some <laughs> fucking transition strategy, huh? Right? I mean, it's unbelievable. So, Matt, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. In relation to that point you wrote, and this is something that you wrote, in quotes, Fox learned the hard way that once you taste profits from selling outrage, the format ends up owning you. You have to keep upping the ante, and before long, a slow news day forces you to make Matterhorns out of molehills like Obama ordering Dijon mustard. Is this why you believe Fox has been wall-to-wall cancel culture for the past month, talking about Mr. Fucking Potato Head and Dr. Seuss? Yes. I mean, I think that's also a winning issue for for them. I mean, I think pe- people do... They do care about that issue, but but it's more, uh, it more has to do with they they got to come up with something that that tweaks their audience and makes them upset and makes them scared, and, that, and I think that's the formula that people talk about in the media more than anything is this idea of we're going to show you something that's going to freak you out, make you think that politicians are going to take away something from you. So whether it's you know Fox making their audience think that their guns are going to be taken away. Um, you know, or MSNBC, like, you know, democracy itself is, is in peril there. You know, you might have martial law tomorrow because of Trump. It's, it's that kind of thing that, you know, when you, when you do that in the media, you you got, you got to come back with something better the next day or else people are going to tune out. Um, and it tends to be, you know, it's like you said, chasing the dragon, you got to keep continually, uh, add to the fire. So it's, it's tough when you don't have, uh, somebody to focus on the way um, you know the the way the networks don't don't now with Trump gone again. I think it'll be easier for Fox because all they can do is beat up they they can just beat up on Biden all day long, and um, you know and claim that uh, there's going to be you know an inflationary threat or that uh, you know there's going to be massive wealth distribution or whatever it is. Uh, it's just going to be harder for the other other networks. With a COVID vaccine bringing safety to millions, it seems like there is light at the end of the tunnel as well as a return to normal life. With all this in mind, why not take this moment to get your life in order by protecting your family with life insurance? Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers in one place and save 50% or more. Once you find your best option, the Policy Genius team will set up your new policy for you and answer any questions you have along the way. Here's how you get started. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare policies from as little as $15 a month. You might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. Since their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance company, there's zero hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius will take care of everything. It's that kind of service that has earned Policy Genius a five star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. The best part? All the benefits of Policy Genius the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice are totally free to use. So while you're tidying up around the house this spring, why not get your life insurance organized too? 
You could save 50% or more by comparing quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. So go to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Well, as I'm sure you've seen, I mean, CNN is basically 24-7 coronavirus. Now, of course, they do a good job, actually a great job, like MSNBC, in covering um, whether it's the shooting or other matters that are happening, like the hurricane that just touched down. Um, You know, they do that, but their fallback is the coronavirus. And rightfully so, when you have 540,000 Americans that have now perished, of course, the vast majority of it under the Trump administration's failures. I mean, they're just complete bungling of the coronavirus and COVID. Now, yes, I agree with you. Fox is going to sit there and they do have it easier than MSNBC or CNN because you're right. They're just going to attack Biden and Kamala for anything and everything that they possibly can say um, true or not. And most of it is not. So what has Biden done wrong so far? He hasn't fixed immigration. I mean, let's not let's not fool ourselves. Donald Trump did not create the immigration problem. Immigration has been a problem for a long time in America. Every politician has kicked the can down the road thinking that maybe the next guy will have some idea. We have to figure it. We're just going to continue to roll with it. But Trump did something that no other president did. He just cut the whole damn thing off. Now, it's one thing to turn around to say that we have an immigration problem. And I think everybody will acknowledge that. We need actual rules on how this thing works, right? But Trump didn't want to do that because it's too much thought. You know, the guy has ADD and he's not interested in long sermons on what needs to be done to fix something. That's it. Shut the borders, right? Throw them throw in cages. Separate the parents from the children. That way other people won't come. I mean, that's the guy's mentality. It's, it's a mentality that lacks any empathy for anybody else other than himself. I mean, could you imagine, you know, as a father, you know, I remember many, many years ago, and I've told this story once before on this podcast early on, that my daughter had run away from us. She was like two years old when we were in a, a store uh, in Palm Beach, Florida. And my heart sunk. I mean, I was I was in dread that she was gone. She was gone. Now, she was gone for all of 10 seconds. And then I looked down and I saw feet, you know, hiding behind the dresses. Imagine waking up after a year and not knowing where your child is because you were separated at the border. Donald Trump doesn't give a shit because it's not him. It doesn't affect him. And you know what? He wants to show himself as this big, tough guy that's willing to separate families, mothers and fathers, from their children in order to stop you from coming to this country. But that's not what this country is about. You see, fundamentally, he just doesn't understand what America is all about. He understands what the Trump organization is all about, but he doesn't understand America at all. May I ask, did you ever push back on on these things with him or uh, like... What what were your conversations like with him about these things? Well, the one conversation that I've referred to in the past was when I went to see him in the White House, in the Oval Office, and it was right after the enactment and really the, the failed attempt at the 
the travel ban, as mm-hmm. he wanted to call it, which in all fairness was nothing more than a Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. And I turned around and I asked him, seriously, boss, what the fuck? Right? Why? That's not what we agreed. You were supposed to come right out of the box with an infrastructure bill. Why would you possibly pass or try to pass a Muslim ban, a ban on an entire religion? That's just batshit crazy. And his comment to me is, ah, Bannon and Miller got it all wrong, but we'll try to get it right the next time. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, as a country, we're in real trouble if Donald Trump is relying on Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, right? The two biggest jerk-offs on the planet, right? Who are both, what, I mean, it's hard to imagine. They're both white fucking supremacists. They're, and what's crazy is even Steve Miller, who's Jewish by birth, is really, you know, he's a, he's a deep down inside, he's a self-loathing Jew. So this is who, this is who you want to start talking on your behalf? I don't know. I never, but... That was Trump. He's really, in all fairness, he's non-confrontational. So I've heard that that he that he uh, he doesn't like to to have uncomfortable conversations. That he's afraid of confrontations, especially with with powerful men. Is that is that true? Uh, that he that he avoids those, those kinds of situations. He does. He does. I mean, any time that there was a firing, like the firing of Corey Lewandowski when mm-hmm. he was the campaign manager early on, Trump didn't do it. We got the okay to do it, but Don Jr. and I sat with Matt Calamari, the CF, this uh, COO at the Trump Organization. We called Corey in. Don Jr. just blurted right out, Corey, you're fired. Get lost. I mean, it was as fast as that. And I was sitting there. I wanted to be the one to do it. But Don just blurted it out because he despised Corey even more than I, which is hard to believe. And Trump just didn't want to, he didn't do it. Even when people at the Trump Org um, he wanted them to leave. He would have somebody else like myself do it. He's just, that's just who he is. So for him, it's all about projecting that tough guy image. Right. But he's really not. He's really just an overgrown baby, which is why that balloon is just so apropos. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The immigration thing, um, you know, I thought, I, I, I always thought, I, I, I had covered immigration before he became president, and I obviously saw we we already had policies that regularly separated kids from their families um you know i I did stories about people who would go you know go to the store and they next thing you know they're being deported to you know i i knew an ecuadorian guy who got sent to mexico by mistake and it took years before he ever saw his kids again we had those policies what was different was that you know trump did it on purpose like (laughs) the whole idea was to create an incentive to let people know that they were they were going to be separated from their families, right? That was the idea behind the policy. Uh, so, I mean, from the press point of view, I always thought it was fascinating because on the one hand, I think they misreported the idea that we we had never done this before, but they uh, they were correct in in giving Trump a hard time about it uh, in the sense that uh, it was it was an escalation of something that already existed. And what I'll tell you something, what I found incredible about that entire immigration bungle was how Donald Trump came right out and he justified separating parents from children, claiming that these children aren't even the biological children of these coyotes, right? Uh, Which is what I think they call them. And what blew my mind, and I didn't even know this, Melania felt the same exact way. 
Two fucking peas in a pod. Until I had Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, the author of Melania and Me, on the show. And she started to say to me, Michael, you're so wrong. Melania and Donald are perfect together. They're two peas in a pod. And then you hear Melania talking about how these coyotes are taking these children and kidnapping them from their country and bringing them here. And that Donald saved them. Right? I mean, it's amazing how somebody can be so, just so, I don't, what's, what's the right word? To be so screwed up in their head that well, they can actually justify separating an, a parent from a newborn child and then saying that Donald is actually doing that child a favor. I mean, it's insane. But did he, did, were his uh, media reading habits, were they confined to just a couple of things, right? I mean, I've, I've heard that, that he basically, he watched Fox and Friends, he he checked his own Twitter feed, and that was basically it. Uh, I mean, is, is that... No, is no, 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 no. He watched CNN and MSNBC, too. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, okay. he would delve into the ABCs, CBS, and NBCs. But for the most part, he had three televisions on all the time. Or he would just click through, one, two, three, meaning starting out with Fox after they kissed his ass for you know five, ten minutes, he got tired of that, and he wanted to see what guys like Don Lemon uh, were saying about him. Uh, right. Or Wolf Blitzer, right? Or Aaron Burnett, who at one point in time, he used to say that they were friends because he had Aaron Burnett on The Apprentice a few times. And then, of course, he would go straight over right to MSNBC, where he would watch and see what they had to say. And then he would make little bullet points. See, Donald Trump, when Donald Trump would read off the teleprompter, at least things would go smoothly. But it's when he would start to rift, right? And he would start to ad lib into it is when you realize that you were going down a, a rabbit hole into a dumpster of shit, just pure shit and stupidity that only Donald Trump can get away with. Did he have a, did he have, does he have a, a learning disability, dyslexia, anything like that? Because I noticed he hates reading from a script. Uh, he would, you know, he would go to an event, he, there would be a prepared remarks and he would do one line and then he would just veer off. I remember reading that he had never read from a script until his father's funeral. Was there, was that just his personality or was it, or was it because he had an issue with reading? No, has no issue with reading. It's okay. ignorance and arrogance. Okay. His feeling is that he has this God-given talent to read a crowd. And in all fairness, he does have a pretty, you know, a good sense mm-hmm. of the crowd. And as he's starting off and reading it, he's beginning to feel the energy that the crowd is, you know, is giving back to him. And then he plays off of it. And then he'll throw out something which is somewhat let's just say, um, improper, and test or gauge the response from the crowd. And if the response is applaud, which again, to him is like oxygen, he lives off of that shit, then what he would do is he would go even further and further. Like the part when he turned around and he goes, you know, anybody over there, he goes, knock that guy out. He goes, I'll pay for your legal bills, knowing that nobody in their right mind would say something like that. Right at a at a rally. I mean, what if what if a whole group of these guys ended up beating this guy to death? First of all, let me tell them if they're listening to the show, which I'm sure they're not. But if they were, Donald will not pay your legal bills. Right. Right. Good luck in good luck in getting to him. And even if you could get to him, good luck in getting him to stroke a check. 
because that's just not going to happen. So that was really his thing. He just he's he always wanted to be an entertainer. And that's really what his entire campaign was. We were all basically sick and tired of the same sort of bullshit by our representatives. And then, you know what Donald Trump showed everybody? Yeah, I think maybe we should go back to the old same bullshit of our representatives as opposed to allowing somebody like Trump, right, who's this (laughs) grifter in chief, right, to infect the country with his stupidity. But, you know, I got to tell you something, Matt. You're asking me a lot of questions, and that's really not what the podcast is I understand. Is Sorry. I'm, I'm, just, only, I'm, I'm just curious. curious. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, nah, that's okay. Curiosity is good. But I do want you to talk to me about your recent piece on Substack um, about the Sovietization of the American press. This one I found very interesting, especially considering I got caught up into it with the fake, you know, with the steel dossier and all of the bullshit mm-hmm. that basically started me down that track to the Southern District of New York. Now, in it, you describe how the Times and other outlets have turned toward a kind of Biden um, ideology as they depict him as the champion of the poor or the vanquisher of the pandemic. What do you think is the reason for this kid gloves treatment of the current administration? So in mid-2016, Uh, There was a famous editorial by a guy named Jim Rutenberg at the New York Times who wrote a a piece called Trump is Testing the Norms of Objectivity in Journalism. And the the thesis of it was Trump was so bad that we had to change our approach, that journalists had to no longer think about just being true, but they had to think about being true to what what he called history's judgment. And that meant take a more adversarial posture towards Trump. Now, I I had talked to a lot of reporters. It wasn't an ethical thing for them. They just wanted to find a way to cover Trump a lot without it looking like uh, they were doing it just for the ratings. Um, I think they changed their business model at that time to become very Trump-focused, Trump-centric. They just added a little bit more negativity uh, to it. And, you know, what ended up happening is that the, the, the Times changed its business model from being based on advertising and newsstand sales to being about subscriptions. They're now the number one uh, subscribing organization in the world. They have over 7 million subscribers that who pay, which means that you don't have to worry about seeming even-handed to a huge audience anymore. You really only have to worry about those 7 million people who are subscribing. And so you just find out what those people like, what they want to hear, and you just give it to them. So during the Trump years, that meant, you know, a lot of negative stories about Trump, a lot of which were deserved. But as you know, some of them were, you know, uh, (laughs) kind of bullshit, especially the Russia stuff. Uh, And then there was but now that Biden's in office, they have a lot of readers who just want to hear good news about Biden. And, you know, not not that he's been a bad president. I actually don't think he has been. But, uh, but you, you know, the, the tone that they're taking is different than what they would have done five or ten years ago. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about our broken political system. Much of it seems beyond our grasp and, dare I say, unfixable. Sometimes, though, you just don't want to think about it and wish the problem would just go away. The same goes for when something's off in the bedroom. Rather than fix the problem, we pretend it's not happening and hope it just goes away. Well, folks, it doesn't. You need to take control of your own life and fix what's broken. So what are you waiting for? Go to roman.com slash Cohen now. 
With Roman, you can get a free online valuation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. And the whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Cohen and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without even leaving your home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and just take care of it. So go to GetRoman.com slash Cohen now. You'll get $15 off your first month. It's really time to take care of your ED. And remember, get started today and you'll save $15 on your first order of ED treatment. Well, let's not forget that being negative to Trump was financially beneficial to everybody. But it wasn't just being negative to Trump. It was being negative to anybody associated with Trump, myself Mm -hmm. included. I mean, in all fairness, take a look at like Jim Acosta. Jim Mm -hmm. Acosta became a household name, even if you didn't watch, you know, CNN, simply because of the battles that he constantly had. I mean, they actually made the press room into a war room. It was a war room between whether it was... Stupid Sean Spicer against the media, or then all the way down to Kaylee the Kook McEnany, right? Who would sit there, lie her ass off. I mean, just fucking lie to the American people on television and expect because she said it with a smile, right? That she was, that it was acceptable and that it was true. And the reason that they do that is because they don't care what you think. All they're doing is playing to a party of one. It's Donald Trump's world. I'm here only to please him. And that's sick. But the New York Times made, made, made mistakes. And I think, you know, in all fairness, that they acknowledge that they made mistakes. You know, groups like the New York Post will never acknowledge that they made a mistake. Neither will other, you know, will other um, outlets. They just refuse to acknowledge that there's a mistake. I mean, look, I've never been to Prague. I've never been to Prague well, in my right. life, proven, testified to, and so on. I have yet to see one single person make an apology for other. There was one guy from the Wall Street Journal that, you know, apologized on behalf of all, you know, um, of all journalists that they made. And that was a long time ago. But not one person ever retracted their statement. And the reason that they didn't is not so much that they wouldn't want to, even though that they don't. But the real reason is because every day Donald Trump created more and more chaos. More and more chaos each and every day. They never had a chance to get around to turning around and writing an article about an apology. There just was no time because what they didn't want, what the New York Times doesn't want, is to get scooped by, for example, Substack or the Daily Beast, right? They just don't want to get scooped by them because they're the New York Times. They're the Wall Street Journal. They're the Washington Post. They don't want to get scooped by these bloggers, so to speak. Uh, but what I would argue, though, is that in journalism, when you screw up, you get, you got to own it and you got to own it quickly because let, let's say that you really do care about, um, you know, making sure the whole world is, is, is aware of every bad thing that Donald Trump has done. You've got to you've got to make sure that there are no mistakes that you've made out there that you're not correcting. In other words, the, 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 the you know, the Cohen in Prague stories really badly hurt the credibility of the news media. And it wasn't just that story. There were lots and lots of stories like that that, you know, kind of went unaddressed 
for years. And I think, you know, not taking care of that problem was a, was a big deal for our business in the same way that the WMD thing was a big deal for our business. Um, and that's not because I like Donald Trump. I, I don't. I, I just think that you got to, you know, you, you can't just feed the public something that's untrue and expect and expect that they'll forgive you for it um, because they don't like this or that politician. Well, that's true, except the, the media had a very difficult problem as it related to being cover the coverage of the Trump presidency, the administration, because. They actively went out to provide misinformation and disinformation. So you're a journalist. I come to you and I tell you a story, whatever the story may be. Michael Cohen's in Prague, okay? And then, you know, you turn around and say, eh, I'm, you know, I'm going to need a secondary source. So Corey Lewandowski makes that statement and he gets Dave Bossy to turn around and to say, he told me he was there too. So now you have these two individuals that did this all the time. And I know because certain journalists who I'm very close with told me that this is what they would do. That one would lie and the other would swear to it. And then look at Michael Avenatti. The guy lied about every single thing, deflected everything, and at one point became like a hero, a a democratic hero, until ultimately what did we learn about him? That he's the biggest scumbag that ever walked the fucking planet, right? <laughs> that everything he claimed about me, he, you know, turned out to be nothing more than the way Donald Trump does. He was deflecting and, you know, and pushing everything onto somebody else with his own personal issues, sure. right? Being a thief, being a thug, being an idiot, right? That's, that was Avenatti. So, you know, the problem with the press is you have to rely upon sources to provide you the information, but what happens when your sources are just as flawed as the candidate, right? As, right as the candidate is, and that they're trying to disseminate a story that benefits the candidate or hurts the candidate, and they're using sources as a means of verifying the statements that are made. It's a very tough position. It's a real tough position. Yeah, I I I, I agree, but um, you know, I think. Re- in the previous generation, I think journalists, most journalists operated from the assumption that every public figure was lying until proven otherwise. Uh, like that's the only safe way to do the job. Uh, and especially when you're dealing with national security issues, because you you often can't confirm the story independently. So, you know, somebody calls you from the CIA. You might remember that there was a story the Times did that was it was something along the lines of uh, spies in Moscow go dark, right? And that was because a high-ranking intelligence source told them that, oh, we've lost contact with all of our spies in, in Russia. Now, how do you confirm that if you're, if you're a journalist, right? There's no way, like, you're not going to have an in in the CIA or you're not going to have the direct numbers of those, of those operatives, right? So you got to trust that source or not. I think, I think you end up, probably having to just kill those stories or not do them if you if you're if you don't have absolute proof that they're true which is what happened with the the wmd thing like there were lots and lots of people who had high-ranking titles who were telling these newspapers and these television organizations yeah that you know saddam's got this and that and they were lying you know <laughs> and so you have you have to assume that all that stuff is bullshit until somebody t- until you're until you're shown it you know I think that's the problem. Yeah, but in the old days, it was only a handful of really important 
newspapers and so on. Now there's a million bloggers out there with a million different areas for news sources, and nobody wants to get scooped by the other, especially not if you're a major. But I do want to go back to this and, and pivot a little bit. On March 23rd, you posted an article on Substack that discussed Biden appointee Timothy Wu's troubling views on the First Amendment. And in it, you wrote, and I quote, more ominously, Wu suggests that in modern times, the government may be more of a bystander to a problem in which private platforms play the largest roles. Therefore, a potential solution boils down to asking whether these platforms should adopt or be forced to adopt norms and policies traditionally associated with 20th century um, journalism. Now, unpack this for my listeners, if you would, where you believe Wu wants to take these policies and how would returning this country to 1950s media values potentially affect journalists like yourself? Sure. Well, there's a big debate going on within the Democratic-aligned activist community about, about speech and about the Internet. There is one group of people who believes that the correct course uh, should be centered around antitrust action, br- breaking up the monopoly power of companies like Facebook and Google. Uh, and then there's another train of thought that's increasingly popular that I think is reflected by people like Professor Wu, which basically they're resigned to the idea that these companies are super powerful. And so rather than try to break them up or change their business model, what they want to do is work with them to prevent certain kind of content from from uh, being seen. So that means they want the companies to crack down on cons- conspiracy theory, on hate speech, on f- false uh, fake news. Uh, I understand the, the idea behind that, but we've never had a media regulator in this country, like a federal media regulator. We've always dealt with this primarily through the courts, through libel law and things like that. And what they want to do is something that is, I think, a pretty radical solution, which is let's let's have a partnership between the government and, you know, sort of a, a monopoly, tech monopolies, and we'll try to impose standards that way, which I don't think is, I personally don't think is the right way to go about it, but it's a fashionable, view, fashionable viewpoint right now uh, on the Hill. How do you get past First Amendment issues on that? Well, uh, the, you get past it by by saying technically this isn't a First Amendment issue because because it's going to be a private company that's going to be taking the action. Now, I would argue that if the government, if a senator says to a company like Facebook, and they did say this, we demand that you come come up with a plan to prevent the sowing of discord, right? And the company then subsequently starts banning material that I think that is a First Amendment issue because now the government has has, uh, played a role in, you know, establishing or preventing certain kinds of speech. But they'll argue technically that's the private company doing that. Um, So they may be right. You know, I think a lot of a lot of lawyers would agree with that argument. But I think it's still very worrisome. Yeah, sounds so to me. You know, I I can't stop thinking because. The Steele dossier is obviously it's a pet peeve for me. It's something that really it, it does. It really burns my ass, you know, and so on. But I want to I, I want to talk to you a minute about the Steele dossier. Right. And 
the way it was used by both the mainstream media as well as those inside the government, right? Because we all know about this, that the FBI, and this is what my second book is going to be about. Despite Steele himself, who I think is a fucking asshole, right? (laughs) Viewed as being essentially untrustworthy. Now, you tweeted about this on March 19th, right? Saying Christopher Steele, and this is a quote, Christopher Steele absolutely was the source for at least two major articles before the 2016 election. It's why he was let go as an FBI informant, as his handling agent later testified, saying it made him completely untrustworthy. Now, I, again, have my own views on the Steele dossier, as well as for Christopher Steele, as it was, and I had said this before, it's what kicked off the chain of events that led to my ultimate incarceration. But I'm really curious about your take on this. Christopher Steele occupies the same role in this story for me as somebody like Ahmed uh, Chalabi did for the uh, WMD story. I, I, I first heard about the Steele dossier or the, or the material in it in like September of 2016. Reporters started to whisper to each other that there was this stuff floating around um, that was really, really damaging to Trump that suggested that he was a spy and that, that, uh, that he was being blackmailed. And then there were a couple of stories that came out. There was one in Yahoo in September of 2016 uh, that was about Carter Page that cited a, a quote, well-placed Western intelligence source. And then there was another one in Mother Jones at the end of October that said that Trump, uh, the Russians were able to blackmail Trump. uh, And they they quoted a Western spy uh, as being the source of that. Um, And what happened with that story uh, it's really interesting. Um, I had done a lot of work in the financial services industry before, like reporting on that before um, doing this, that, that election. And a lot of short sellers uh, used to do this trick where if they wanted to knock down a company that they'd bet against, they would hire a private company to do research on a firm, right? And it would all be negative. And then they would convince the FBI like, hey, you should look at this. We did, you know, we've got this report. And then as soon as the FBI took possession of, of the report, they would leak to a bunch of reporters, hey, this company's under investigation, right? And then they would write that story and then the stock price would go down and they would make a ton of money. And I, with the Steele dossier, I, it felt to me like exactly the same kind of fraud uh, that, that was being perpetrated on the press like they were they were always referring to a document and what people were saying about it but they were never actually citing it as a source and that as a journalist that should always make you nervous when when you're not referring to this to the actual story but the journey of a story right like you know you know McCain gave it to so-and-so or um, you know, Comey gave it to Trump in a meeting. Like, remember those stories in, 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 the, in early January of 2017? Like, those, those are red flag type of stories for me. Um, but, I, I mean, it must have looked m- much different to you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear, wonder to know what you were thinking at that time. I was angry. I'll bet. Because, <laughs> you know, unlike Carter Page, who was actually there in Russia, and they have him on videotape where he was participating in some you know, speech, uh, I, I don't know what he was doing there, nor do I really care. But I've never been to Russia. I've never been to Prague. I never went to the Czech Republic. It's, uh, you know, I had on this program Norm Eisen, mm-hmm. who 
was actually the ambassador to Czechoslovakia at the time. And he was contacted and said, was an American Michael Cohen, did he enter with, with a passport uh, into, you know, into the Czech Republic? And he looked it up, and within about 15, 20, 30 minutes, uh, as Norm stated, it was shown I was, I was never there. But more important, the fact that Norm stated, as the ambassador to the United States uh, in, Czech, in the Czech Republic, I was in California with my son at the University of Southern California where my son was hoping to play baseball as a pitcher. And we were with the entire baseball team. We were with the coaches. And then the following day, I was with Harvey Levin of TMZ on set, just hanging out with them. I wanted to see his new digs. So I went there with my family. So the FBI, who is the greatest in the world, and as angry as I get with them sometimes, and so they are the greatest, and I think our intelligence community is the greatest in the world. As far as I'm concerned, they knew after, after a day that I had never been to Prague and that this whole thing was complete and utter bullshit. But yet, and this is the part that always bothered me, I forget who it was, maybe it was Andrew Weissman, ended up transferring the file that they had already proven that I had never been there, that the Steele dossier was complete and utter bullshit, they still went ahead and they transferred my file to the Southern District of New York to Jeffrey Berman, who then had to recuse himself because my understanding is that he was his brother was partners with David Pecker in the magazine called George. Mm-hmm. At, at one point. So he recuses himself. David Pecker somehow manages to get complete immunity or partial immunity for testifying against me for all the things he'd been doing to Trump for years. But they transfer it then to Jeffrey Berman, who then gives it to this guy, Kazami, who's going to take over. And all they saw, as far as I'm concerned, the Kazamis, the Bermans, the prosecutors, this guy, Tom McKay, Nick Ruse, and a bunch of other people that are all going to be a big part of my second book. All they saw in me was fame, was 10 minutes, 15 minutes of airtime, and that this would help them, which they all have used my name in their biographies in order to get seven-figure paying jobs at the top white glove firms or over at uh, Guggenheim Partners. That's all that I was. I was basically, you know, a piece of meat left in the ground for an animal to sit there and chew on and just to discard. And that's the whole problem with our Department of Injustice, because once you're in the system, you're fucked. And it's just a matter of whether you fuck to the nth degree or to the (laughs) x degree. It doesn't make a difference, you know. But as we're, as we're, you know, listen, I could laugh about it. I, I try to laugh about it now. But inside, my, I mean, my soul is shredded right. from this whole experience. My family's happiness, you know, my, my livelihood, my, you know, my, my psyche. It's all, I mean, it's all damaged. And, you know, I, and I, I try so hard every day, you know, to put on a fake smile for my wife and my children so that they, you know, don't see life abnormal because that's the only reason that i'm here is to make sure that they have a beautiful life and you know listen these prosecutors that's the beauty of truth the truth will rise and with all of this stuff that's coming out every single day as one animal turns against the other right the truth comes out with their emails and they start ratting on each other and i'm looking forward to that but as we're now ending the hour i have just one last question for Mm -hmm. you i'm curious if you follow the scandal that has befallen the Lincoln Project. 
a little bit. What do you make? Have you? What do you make of their brand of never Trump establishment Republicanism? What do you think becomes of this brand of the GOP in the age of the Matt Getzes uh, and these other you know wing nuts that are out there? Well, first of all, I think. I mean, I, th- I think these guys recognize that they they had an easy way to raise a whole bunch of money, which was just to present themselves as Republicans who were sympathetic to the cause of getting rid of Donald Trump. I mean, that's instant uh, PR that they were going to get from certain uh, you know parts of the of the of the media. They raised uh, tens of millions of dollars, right? They didn't do a whole lot with that money, if I, if I remember correctly. And but also, there's there's another factor here that I think is important, which is there's you know there's kind of a subtext that runs through the evolution of the modern Democratic Party, which is that they, the people who actually run the Democrats, the sort of Clinton Democrats, they're more simpatico with the the kind of people who are at the Lincoln Project. They get along better with the Bill Crystals and David Frums of the world than they do with people like Bernie Sanders. It's a more natural alliance to them. So it's two things. To me, I think it was just a small time kind of a hustle, the the, the Lincoln Project. But in a, in a larger sense, it does reflect something kind of about the evolution of them, the Democratic Party, that this is kind of where they want to be. Like, these are the allies that they kind of like. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know a whole lot about it, but from the outside, that's what it looked like. Yeah, I'm actually I was always impressed with the work that the Lincoln Project did. They were they managed to get excellent ads out quickly. They were very uh, intelligent. They were hard hitting, very hard hitting. And um, yeah, I'm sorry to see that their organization, you know, is being rocked by scandal after scandal. But you know, yeah, I mean, I would I would respect a. a if, if there was a wing of the of the Republican Party that wanted to separate itself from Donald Trump in a way that was, I think was meaningful, I would be I would be very sympathetic to that. But I I just didn't see that that was what was going on with these. They they, they were effective from a PR standpoint. That that is true. Well, Matt Taibbi, let me say thank you so much as we wind this down. Really, truly appreciate the conversation. We'd love to talk some more sometime. Rest assured, I'll be calling. I will definitely be calling you and feel free to reach out to me for any of your um, additional questions and All right. Thanks concerns. very much, Michael. I appreciate it. Take care now. And now for today's mea culpa. I can't help but smile when I think about the fresh hell that awaits Matt Getz as he begins his own journey of accountability. While the facts are still being pieced together, where there is smoke, there is often fire. Getz, though, has been a consistent thorn in my side throughout my travails and positioned himself as Trump's own dirty trickster, threatening me and my family during my testimony before the House Oversight Committee, something for which he was forced to apologize when faced with rebuke and legal consequences. Luckily, I saved his non-apology apology for a rainy day just like this one. He wrote, It was not my intent to threaten, as some believe I did. I'm deleting the tweet, and I should have chosen words that better showed my intent. I'm sorry. But you weren't sorry. You were part of a concerted effort to hurt me and my family and prevent me from testifying before Congress. It's part of a pattern of abuse that is unleashed against you by MAGA forces if you speak out against them. For many folks, it causes them to think twice before crossing the likes of Matt Getz. 
but I would not be silenced and I was not afraid. The truth was always on my side, as were my family through this entire ordeal. Getz, on the other hand, is finding himself completely and totally alone. He committed the cardinal sin of getting caught, which is only the red flag that matters in Trump world. I'm hoping that this investigation gets the scrutiny it deserves, and those MAGA faithful who worshipped at the feet of Getz and those like him will finally be exposed for who they are and what they do. Hopefully those worshippers who followed him down such a despicable path will see where the path has ultimately led. There's no spin here or justification that can save him from what is headed his way. Your problems were not caused by the deep state or cancel culture. This one's on you, and this time everyone is watching. And thanks for listening.